And I'm Erica. And we are in a pretty new series. We just began with last week's episode, taking a look at violence in the Bible. Um, And last week, we kind of laid out some of the ground we think we're going to cover. We're going to be looking at different biblical passages and stories throughout this series and looking at the different challenges they present. Because there are times in the Bible where God is authorizing or permitting human beings to do violence to each other. There's times where God is the one directly as the agent of violence, that's just difficult in a different way, and there's times where God isn't just allowing or permitting hypothetical people, but directly killing, hey, you, Fred, go kill this other person, um, and what do we do with that? And eventually, we'll have to deal with, we're followers of Jesus, what does any of this have to do with, uh, how do we deal with any of this, Jesus who is executed by the state, by the way. Um, so where are we going to go today, Erica? So today, we're, we're jumping into the second book of scripture, the book of Exodus, and specifically, we're going to be looking at the plagues of Exodus. So this, this is God causing violence, but not in any of the ways necessarily see that, you, that you, you said directly, but using nature to cause violence to people, like a very indirect kind of sense of violence. Um, and so we're, we're going to talk about um, each of these different plagues, kind of how it causes violence, because a lot of them are pretty indirect. Mm-hmm. And also we want to tackle something that really bothers me, and I think it bothers all of us around the table, that as these plagues continue on, we get this sense of God hardening Pharaoh's heart. To allow the justification, to allow the justification of more plagues to come along. Yeah. So Maybe should we real quick set the scene, if we're going to be spending time in Exodus, yeah. the, the setting is the, the Israelites, the Hebrews, are enslaved people under Pharaoh's Egypt. Mm-hmm. It's terrible. Nobody thinks that's a good arrangement except for Pharaoh. Um, and the people are holding on to this hope that one day God will keep the promise made to their ancestors, Abraham and Sarah and Isaac and Jacob, that they would live in the land of Canaan. And uh, the thing that's holding them back is Pharaoh is holding them enslaved. And so the confrontation that's set up is, will Pharaoh let the people go, right? Yeah, and the savior they've been waiting for has come about, Moses. Okay. Yeah, we know, we know all the story, the Prince of Egypt or Charles Augustine. <laughs> like, we've all seen one of those two movies. Um, you know, Moses was raised in Pharaoh's court and leaves Pharaoh's court because, oh, wait, he did violence to somebody. He murdered somebody. <laughs> he murdered somebody and he ran away from it. And now he's back to save his people. And so this is that confrontation that comes up. You know, Moses has gone back to Pharaoh and he says, let my people go. And Pharaoh says, no. Yeah. Did, did they sing a really dramatic duet? Yes, absolutely. <laughs> Just versions, like the Prince of Egypt. In many versions, that is indeed what happens. Yes. Or in the Charlton Heston version, somebody says, blood makes poor mortar. That's another <laughs> classic line ingrained in my memory. Um, but okay, so, so that's the setting. And all the plagues that are sent on Egypt from the, let's say, lower stakes ones like water turned to blood, which is not nothing, but is easier mm-hmm. to recover from, maybe, uh, than directly death of the firstborn you know, immediately, that all of them are framed as God trying to get Pharaoh to let the people go. And on the one hand, it's, that seems like uh, one way of framing this, as Pharaoh is just so stubborn, he won't let the people go, so God does increasing, increasingly severe things to get Pharaoh's attention. But the wrinkle in that text, the wrinkle in that reading is, there's times where Pharaoh seems about ready to let go, and then God actually steps in to make it messier, right? Yes. Yeah. And, that, and that is so tricky, right? Because, like, 
all of the plagues, they're, they're not nothing, right. right? Like the water turned into blood, that is people's uh, source of water for drinking, for watering their plants, uh, for cooking, for hygiene. It's very important. Um, you know, their crops are affected, their livestock are affected. That's their food source, that's their livelihood. So like this is indirect violence and you know, and I think that, it, you know, keep coming back to it of Pharaoh seems like he's wavering. Pharaoh's about ready to give in. And then God hardens Pharaoh's heart. And then God hardens Pharaoh's heart. And so that another plague can come about seemingly to give God even more glory of like God is able to control the elements. God is able to control the animals. God is even able to control life itself. And I think that's a really important piece to notice, is that the, the biblical text seems comfortable saying God's allowed to do this because this is about God's glory against the other entities in the world, the natural world, or there are even some who would say this is meant to be a contest between God and the pantheon of Egyptian deities. This is sort of God is more powerful than you know, the, the God of the underworld, the God of the Nile, and the sun and the moon. That, that, that's that contest. But that even if, even if that justification worked for the, the era in which this text is written, it probably makes us squirm, and we've got to deal with it. What, what, do I, what, what does that mean? That, like, is God's glory worth the, the cost in, in human lives, even for a plague where they're indirectly lost, like water turned to blood, and now they don't have any drinking water or, or water to feed their families? We should probably say, too, that in the course of you know, 20 centuries and change of Christian history, there are different branches of the Christian family tree that can live more or less comfortably with those implications. Mm -hmm. There are some branches of the Christian family tree, um, uh, for example, Calvinism, um, that is not only comfortable with saying, yes, God, Pharaoh's heart, uh, God hardened Pharaoh's heart, but that is God's very right to do because God can do whatever God wants with anybody, and we don't get to ask like a potter and the clay. The clay doesn't mm -hmm. get to question what the potter's making. Them. So... There are traditions that solve the problem by just saying, if you don't like it, sorry, this is how God is. And then there are other traditions that are less comfortable with that, because that kind of sounds like God is given permission to be a bully or a jerk if God chooses to, because God is omnipotent. Um, and what do we do if we're out of those traditions that think this is problematic? Likewise, I think that there's still lots of American Christians who are comfortable with the idea of God sending natural disasters to punish us. Right. Mm -hmm. That, you know, that God didn't stop with just the plagues, but like when hurricanes come through and devastate a state, you know, that is most likely divine punishment for something. And let's look at ourselves and decide what it is that we needed punishment for. Right. Um, I personally am a really uncomfortable with that thought because you know, I think we need to reread the book of Jonah. Sure, mm -hmm. sure, sure. And I think that's a good point. Like, just like last time we talked about what are ways this text can be misused, that we said there are ways that the Genesis 9 passage could be abused, even for whatever it meant back in its original setting, that this is one of those passages that, for whatever we're going to say it meant in the contest between Pharaoh and God, that it is not, we're not given permission to say anytime there's a disaster that is something that feels uncomfortable in the natural realm, God must be punishing somebody who you don't like. Um, and we are still, it is a misreading of the text to say this gives you license to who is God, who is God punishing this time, huh? Well, especially because these, most of these plagues, in fact, I, I would say at least 90% of them 
only attack the Egyptians, mm -hmm. you know, like, especially when it comes to the livestock and some of the other things. And then definitely with the, the firstborn, it does not touch Israel, right. mm -hmm. you know, whatsoever. Where When we talk about these natural disasters, like I remember Katrina was one of those yeah. where everybody said it hit New Orleans because of the LGBT community. Well, guess what? It didn't hit the, um, the French Quarter where a lot of that community thrives. You know, it hit everywhere else. So it, you know, Katrina hit all of southern Louisiana and other, you know, parts of the state sure. surrounding it. Sure. So we, I, I'm with you, Sarah. We can't say that natural disasters now are necessarily punishment because they're not going after just one people group. And I think it's really interesting. Anytime you'll get folks who are so sure they can pinpoint who is being targeted by this or that natural disaster, how when other disasters happen that don't hit a target that they think is a particular enemy or something like that, they're, all of them will include that's not God's will. You know? So like yeah. a tornado that hits uh, you know, a small town in Kansas, well, that's not God's punishment. Clearly, that's a storm. We have to you know, buckle down and help those poor people. But when a disaster strikes mm -hmm. people who I don't like, man, is that easy to decide we just, you know, who, who God is after there. So I think here's an important guardrail. Here's a, one of those signposts like in the old-timey maps, here there be dragons. Don't make that move of saying, oh, there's plagues in Egypt, therefore, anytime a disaster happens, God is punishing somebody, and you can tell who they're punishing because of who got affected. Nope, that's not, not fair. Um, but I do think you also raised the point there, Sarah, that all these plagues bring collateral damage with them mm -hmm. um, that sometimes, again, we don't spend time thinking about. Um, that it's not just Pharaoh who suffers, even though he's the primary villain. The, all the people of Egypt, and again, maybe they're all participants in the whole system of Pharaoh's Egypt, but there are people who don't get to you know, feed their livestock because the water's turned to blood. That, that's, that, a lot of people are affected by this. The, the, each of these plagues... Is, is a pretty blunt instrument, um, and we've got to deal with, well, is, is that okay? Are we saying that, that what does that say about the character of God, I guess? Is, is, the, is that how God operates, that God um, has to take the blame or responsibility for zapping a lot of people who maybe not didn't really have a, a, a stake in keeping the Hebrew people enslaved? And that, does that mean every Egyptian who got affected by this was guilty of hating the Israelites or wanting to keep them enslaved. I, I don't know, but that, that's one of the things that makes this problematic, is this isn't um, only Pharaoh is the problem, so only Pharaoh has to suffer, but like this whole nation has to be dealt with. And that is probably uncomfortable to us who are used to hearing and, and viewing the world in a pretty individualistic sort of way, that I, I only bear responsibility for my choices and that I shouldn't be punished for somebody else's choices, whereas the, the biblical world seems to view things a lot more corporately than we tend to be comfortable. This idea, and half-form thought, so just roll with me and tell me if I'm being heretical or something. <laughs> um, this idea of, of God punishing everyone in Egypt, not just Pharaoh. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. It, this isn't a, a punishment from God, but it just takes me to the church in Germany during World War II hmm. that kind of just sat by and hmm. didn't. I, I don't know what the connection is there. That's why I said okay. half-form thought. But like just this idea you know, of... Folks just kind of, yeah, the Egyptians, the lower level Egyptians didn't necessarily, weren't the ones that put the Hebrews in, into right. slavery. They probably weren't even the ones punishing them and using them to, you know, obviously to build the pyramids and things like that. But what did they do to stand up for right, right, right. the Hebrew people? And so I, I don't know where yeah. that's going, but maybe that's just... I, I do think you raise an important point that even if you're not Pharaoh, if you're part of that whole system you share some responsibility for the system being what it is. And, again, I'm not, I'm not sure that anybody is saying that 
Joe Egyptian should have, you know, launched a revolution for people who weren't his. But like, yeah, there's this sense of corporate responsibility. All of Egypt is part of a corrupt system, and mm-hmm. that whole thing is coming under God's judgment. It's not just that we had a bad pharaoh, and if you could put a good pharaoh on but keep the slavery, that will be okay. It seems like part of it is that whole system is rotten, rotten mm-hmm. from beginning to end, and that God needs to say no to all of it. Um, but yeah, that, that it means it's a pretty blunt instrument that lots of people get affected by these plagues. And we've got to wrestle, what, what does that say about the character of God? Um, I mean, on the one end, you could say, especially folks from like a, a, a liberation perspective would say things like, look, in, in some circumstances, there's the oppressed and the oppressor. And if you, if you choose the side of silence, you're choosing the side of the oppressor. Mm-hmm. You're lumping yourself in. And God is at work for the liberation people everywhere. Um, but again, that can be used sometimes in really terrible ways, justifying terrible violence to people who are, who are you know, relatively innocent bystanders. Um, and again, it, 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 I guess it raises important questions about how much does God value human life. If we talked last time about how important every human being is to God because we're all made the image of God, a lot of people get wiped out in these plagues who have not directly committed murder. What do we do with that? How do we, and like, if we were so, so clear last time around in Genesis 9, that God is not giving blanket permission to go lynch somebody or kill somebody just because mm-hmm. you don't like him. It's only murder that is given as the reason why you can put somebody to death. And yet here's God going, eh, I need to show Pharaoh who's boss, so now I will strike down all the firstborn in Egypt. What does that say about God's character? That, that's difficult for us to wrestle with because we all want to insist God is good and just and fair. And do we have to say, well, this must be what justice and fairness looks like? Mm-hmm. Do we have to go... Uh, there's something else that we, we don't see the whole picture yet. How, how, do you live with, how do we live with ourselves with a story like this? Even if it's a story that we're supposed to read as a happy ending. Because to me, this erases the Esther problem again. We talked yeah. a, couple, mm-hmm. a couple episodes back about at the end of Esther, it's a happy ending for Esther, but 75,000 persons died. That here, you're, you're left with good. The Hebrews uh, enslaved people get set free and they get to go to their homeland. Hooray! Um, but it's come at a pretty high price in other lives. And even if they're the enemy, are these people who all should have died or deserved to die? I, I, I don't know. But it, it, it's messier than just a neat and tidy movie ending where we got across the Red Sea, so it's a happy ending for us. Let's just not think about the Israel, the Egyptians who died. In the, in the Bible, at least the translations that I have seen, they seem to continually use the language of child. So that, like, the point that the Bible seems to be making is that God killed the oldest children, mm-hmm. um, the oldest of your offspring. But um, in the Prince of Egypt, and again, this is a movie, not like the Bible, <laughs> they explicitly show adults falling right. as well, that mm-hmm. it is not just like, oh, you're the oldest child of your family, but also like, no, you as an adult, you, as the breadwinner of your family, you are your parents' oldest mm-hmm. child. Mm-hmm. You also are taken. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. And I think that that is, and I don't have an answer for this, but this is, it shows a different level of devastation. Like, yeah. Yeah. if you think about all of the oldest, the first offspring, the children die, like, that's devastating. Yeah. But... I think it's even more devastating if you think about everybody who is the firstborn of one of their parents being taken, no matter your age, because like that's going to be a huge piece of the population, right? Like, right. if you're going to have children, you have to start somewhere. You have to have a first. <laughs> right. right. Um, you don't necessarily have to have a second, but you have to have a first. Right. 
So this is going to affect every single family. Yeah. Even, um, you know, and if the Prince of Egypt is accurate in this regard, it's going to even affect those families who don't have children living at home. Right, right, right. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Now, I, I guess the, the part, part of what, what seems to be in, the, in that wider context, too, is this is in the setting of Pharaoh having also in, begun a campaign of murdering the Hebrew babies when he was worried they were going to become too powerful. It's almost sort of like a, that can't stand to that level of cruelty. No, there will be commensurate mm -hmm. uh, violence against that. But again, like, the, a story like this, where God is explicitly named as the author of the plague, whether it's a plague that indirectly affects people or directly smacking people down with the, the death of the firstborn, we're left with the really big question. What is, what is this saying about God and what God is okay with? Is this, in, because you just mentioned it, Steve, you know, Pharaoh killed the firstborn sons of the Hebrew slaves. Right. Is this God's justice because... At least in my translation, it says the firstborn son. Right. right so your firstborn was a you know, your firstborn son. So is this God's way of punishing Egypt for what Egypt did to the Hebrew children? And I, hence I, why Moses was sent off in the basket and all the other. I, I think in some ways there, there's meant to be that kind of poetic justice in the Exodus text. That, sort of a, that Pharaoh didn't just defeat us in a military battle and his army beat our mm -hmm. army, but he had an explicit campaign to try and wipe out our ability to have meaningful family structures. And I mean, I think that, that's got to be a piece of it, that the idea in killing the Hebrew baby boys was there wasn't going to be, uh, you know, this potential for uh, armies who could, you know, overthrow Pharaoh or that they couldn't have family. You know, like, this mm -hmm. is meant to keep the enslaved people enslaved. from being, yeah, enslaved. Um, and I think there's a recognition in the biblical text that that's a part of, that that violence is a part of that whole system to keep enslaved people enslaved. Um, and that that's not acceptable. So that part of this is God saying, no, that's not okay, and that that needs to be attended to as well. But again, it, it, to me, it, it still raises the question, does that mean that, in, that, that God is comfortable saying, yep, I killed a whole bunch of people to, show, to teach a message, to teach a lesson to Pharaoh? Um, and and what, I guess, what, what are we left with saying about, about who God is um, if, if that's what's attributed to God here? And I think sometimes... Christians are tempted to make the move cheaply or sloppily of just saying, forget all this is here, we're only going to skip ahead to Jesus who only says and does nice things, yeah. you don't have to think about mm -hmm. this. Um, and on the other hand, there's a piece of me as a follower of Jesus who's convinced that all, all of the Hebrew scriptures are somehow need to be read in light of who Jesus is, and that the, the, our definitive picture of Jesus isn't in the one doing the killing, but the one who gets killed on the cross, and that that's an important thing to say about who God is. But at the same time, I can't, you can't ignore that this is a part of our scriptures and that it's a central part of our scriptures. This isn't like a one-off lesser festival story. I mean, like we said that with Esther. Well, it's a lesser known book. It's smaller and Purim is one of the lesser known festivals. So it must not be. This is the central definitive story of Israel's history is the plagues and the Passover and the redemption through the sea. How do we, this, this says something about who the God of Israel is. Yeah, this is the Jew's salvation story. Just right, like the crosses right. are our salvation story as a Christian, this is the Jewish salvation story right. that continues to be told every right. year. Right. This is one of their top three holy days. Right. Um, but one of the other problems I, I have with this, um, with this story, we have these ten plagues. Mm -hmm. and, and we talked a little bit about you know how God has hard, hardened Pharaoh's heart you know throughout to, to continue these plagues coming. If God is all-knowing, mm -hmm. 
and all sovereign and all those other fun, big theological words that we like to use, then why not just go straight to the last plague? Right. These are fair questions, I think, if we're going to take the, the story seriously. And, and I don't know that we have answers to that, but right. I mean, that's something that right. we need to wrestle with. I mean, we're so used to hearing the story we created in the Prince of Egypt or in Charlton <laughs> Heston's Ten Commandments and... You know, and, and while in the Prince of Egypt, the plagues are a big song, and <laughs> you can skip through it because it all happens in the course of music. Yeah, you know, and Charles and Heston, like you, you see bits and pieces, but it's not the central. Right. Even this isn't the central part of either one of those movies. Right. right, right. No, it's it's a quick montage that takes two minutes. Right? Yeah, and so we kind of just skip over the fact that all this happens, and if God knows that what's really going to get Pharaoh's heart to to change, yeah is the killing of his firstborn son. Why don't you just kill Pharaoh's firstborn son, leave the rest of Egypt alone, yeah, and yeah. then let the Hebrew people go free? And I don't have an answer to that, but that's something I think we need to wrestle with when we talk about violence throughout Scripture. Right. There's a piece of me that also wonders if context in which each of those movies or stories that are modern retellings were made says something like, in my recollection, uh, Ten Commandments, the movie, the Cecil B. DeMille movie with Charlton Heston, um, is a lot more willing to spend time with the uh, reality of the plagues and that it killed people, but it seems to me that movie made in 1956 is made in the shadow of World War II with the reality of sometimes there's Nazis and they're the bad guys and you have to kill them because that's what saves yeah. My guess is that in that context, in that culture, in that moment, that it was a lot easier to say, look, there's good guys and bad guys, and if you're fighting Nazis, you got to take the side of fighting Nazis, and God's opposed to the Nazis. And then it's a similar sort of Pharaoh as ultimate villain. Everybody's a part of the side mm-hmm. of Pharaoh. They're all guilty by association. They're all part of that system. And then a generation that had just fought Nazis for years in World War II, that, that makes sense. Is that the way they're going to tell the story? And in the, what, 90s that Prince of Egypt was mm-hmm. released... I, I'm not sure there was that kind of clarity. It was a lot easier. Well, let's just solve this problem by sort of making a musical number, and now we don't have to deal with it at all. Because it's a kids' movie. You know, well, you right, can't... Right, and it's a kids' movie. Right, right, right. Um, and the biblical text, is just, it just sort of you know, leaves it with, yeah, this is for God's glory. God is able to beat up on all the gods and goddesses of the Egyptian pantheon, even Pharaoh himself. And that God, almost like you said, Sarah, is... At the moment where Pharaoh's about ready to give in, God won't let Pharaoh give in just so there can be more pummeling to show God is Lord over nature and the river and the sun and the mm-hmm. moon and life and death, um, which is a hard lesson to learn. You're like, that. wow, that's difficult. And, and at what cost? Why is that such an important lesson for everybody to learn that it requires so much death? It's a, it, I guess one, one answer, even if we're not comfortable with it being satisfactory, is God's glory is more important than anything else, and God can do whatever God wants. So like, th- there's always going to be that as an option. If we find that unsatisfactory, we're going to have to come up with other options. But mm-hmm. that is at least one option that's on the table. I, I want to begin to introduce a, a possible idea that I think may, mean, may need to be revisited throughout this series. And I, I offer this not necessarily as a neat and tidy solution, but it's something that's worth exploring. Um, and it's an idea um, that I've most recently come across through Greg Boyd's two-volume work, The uh, Crucifixion of the Warrior God. Um, and he looks at the big-picture question of violence throughout the scriptures as someone who is convinced that Jesus is the definitive self-revelation of God. And he ends up suggesting something like that uh, pictures of violence in the Bible are something like an anthropopathism or anthropomorphism, but by which he means like when we talk about um, you know uh, 
God shaking the divine fist, or God, um, you know, uh, even when we use you know, personal pronouns, God being he or God being like a mother with her child. Like these are human images to describe something. And in the end, we know God doesn't really have a hand or a foot or a footstool or something like that. These are images that we use. And that there's also times where our human language brings limits to what God really is or isn't responsible for. In a way similar to like in the Jonah story where God changes God's mind and doesn't bring the violence that God was going to like. Jonah seems to know God wasn't really going to bring that. God is prepared to relent that whole time. But our, our human limited language is God changed his mind or something like that. Boyd suggests that if Jesus is the clearest picture of what God is like, that places in the Bible where God is attributed to being the author of violence, God is willing to allow, take in blame for stuff that God isn't directly responsible for. And that he says that's almost a greater picture of God's love, that he's willing to get labeled as being the bad guy when God is not actually being the bad guy. Um, it's, it's a really different way of seeing all of the scripture, and it mm-hmm. sort of changes the way you see things. Um, but that idea is one that, that is poking at me these days, in the, in the last couple of years since I began to, to read uh, his perspective, because it suggests, it, it means you don't have to invent Old Testament God mean and New Testament God nice, but to say God all along is the God we meet in Jesus, and God is willing to put up with a lot of bad press that we ascribe to God because we imagine God has to be the biggest, toughest thing in the room, rather than maybe that's not really how God's nature or character is. Um, but it's, it's an idea I want to toss out as something that would allow us to explore the text in a different way. So then would Boyd say that these are natural plagues that God has allowed to... Because it almost... I mean, Moses announces all of them. Right, right, right. Yeah, so and they we, only hit a certain region. Right, They right, don't right. hit Goshen, which right. is right next door, which a natural plague would, you, you would imagine, hit. Right. I, I think, and I, I will have to revisit and see like how we deal specifically with like a story like the, the plagues in, in Egypt. Um, I think broadly he would say things like human beings invented stories that through which God still speaks and, through, and which are inspired by God, and yet that human beings are storytelling about, that attributes that God made this happen for such and such a reason. That may reveal as much about our biases or our stuff as it says about God. Um, and the, in the end, that God is willing to be revealed through such, um, I don't know, humanly touched sort of ways of speaking is a testament to God's love or greatness anyhow in spite of it. So like, it's, it's, it's a weird sort of a end around. Mm-hmm. And I, I think that's kind of what it feels like to me. It's a sort of a neat and tidy end around of really wrestling with it, but, but it, it's something that pokes at me. It, in a way like, forgive me for using a pop culture reference here, but there was um, a few years ago one of the Batman movies that Christopher Nolan directed, The Dark Knight, where at the end of it, Batman is not responsible for killing a bunch of people, um, but he knows that if it comes out that the good, upstanding Harvey Dent was responsible for killing people, that it's going to be terrible, and so Batman says, you know what, they need someone that they can blame, they can blame me, I can take it. So I can be the villain, even though I'm not, I've not done these terrible things, in fact, I've been fighting for justice, and I'm the one who brings Harvey Dent to justice in the end, but... I can't let people believe that this good person didn't mm-hmm. So, in, in a sense, he's willing to let all the rottenness be put on him. Um, and in a sense, I guess I think something like that has to be what we think about happens at the cross if Paul says, like in 2 Corinthians, God made him to be sin who knew no sin. There's a yeah. sense in which Jesus bears in himself, okay, I'm not the author, I'm, I'm not getting punished for stuff I did, but I'll, I'll bear it. Boyd seems to suggest something like maybe all of Scripture, God's being willing to do that. That God is willing to take a lot of the garbage that we throw at God. That every time a TV preacher says, oh, a hurricane come, God must be punishing somebody. 
the fact that God doesn't zap that TV preacher right then on the spot and go, that's not how this works. Instead of saying that's a sign of God's weakness, Boyd would say that's a sign of God's strength, that God is big enough to take this, this bad press mm-hmm. and these terrible things being said in God's name and not zap this at, at that moment because that's not what God's nature is. Um, in some ways, it's a way of saying, even when we say these terrible things and attribute them to God, God, is, God takes it and God says, if you need to think that about me, I will, I, okay, fine. If you need to have someone, but I'm not the villain, but I'm willing to be labeled the villain. Um, and God's willingness to be labeled the, the villain is precisely, Boyd would say, in, in a reflection or a revelation of God's love. Job. Mm-hmm. I mean, that's the, that's the story of Job. I mean, everybody's blaming right. Job for, you know, that Job did something sinful and Job's blaming God and God's just kind of sitting back in the right. background for 30 some odd chapters saying, well, you know, I'm just going to let you right. diss me and, right. and say all these things, but then eventually I'm going to show you, actually, Job, I am in church. And I get that. I get where Boyd's coming from, but for this particular story... I don't know. I have right. not read the, those books. I've not read that right. from Boyd, and so maybe I maybe I need to read it. And maybe I'll better understand. But and, and, and I, again, I, I offer this not necessarily to say I'm convinced or sold, but to say as an approach to, to engaging scripture, it it does avoid some of the the issues that mm-hmm. we raise. Like if if you're willing to go whole hog in the Calvinist direction of. For God's glory, God can do whatever God wants, and if God says, I need you just so I can destroy you, you have to like it and say, praise God. There are dangers that I, I think are there, in that it ends up, it, it, you're, hard, you're hard pressed to say God is good in that circumstance. There's I, a reason that we're not Calvinists. <laughs> and, and I guess I think like there, there's the challenge. I've heard somebody say that like to say that God is all-powerful, God is all-good, and God is all-knowing, you can't hold all three of those at once without some kind of a paradox. And like I, I, the, mm-hmm. any of our various traditions are willing to fudge it with one of them. Sometimes you land on one side of, well, maybe God doesn't do everything that God could, or maybe God, like some, some will say, well, God, maybe God doesn't know everything, or God isn't really all-good after mm-hmm. all. God is, I, we're, we're left with, I, I think in some ways we have to choose... Are we, is it more important for us to say God is all-powerful and therefore that God is the direct author of terrible things or to say that God is all-good and somehow these things aren't directly God's action? The, the biblical authors seem to just say, deal with it, they're all true, and leave us with a paradox. But that's hard mm-hmm. for us to make sense of. It's hard, it's hard to worship a God like that. It's hard to, to conceive of being in relationship with God like that. And that's where I become jealous of our Orthodox and Eastern you know, f- colleagues and friends because they are able to leave it as mystery sure, for the sure. most part. I mean, I'm sure individually they have questions and things, but like right. the Eastern tradition focuses so much, well, it doesn't focus, but just leaves so much up to that. They just chalk it up. Well, it's a mystery. Sure. Sure. And they just, and they move on sure. where we in, in the Western church have to you know, dis- scrutinize everything. We, and dissect. <laughs> we have to dissect everything and, yeah, sometimes that means fudging on the fact that God is all-knowing or all-powerful. And sometimes it means on we fudge on all-knowing in this section, all-powerful in this section, yeah. and all-present on this, you know, like, yeah. Yeah. you know, we might fudge all three of those, right. but just on different in levels. Different stories or different circumstances. Yeah. And I guess that if, if you go the route of just allow God to be a mystery, that's, that's again, it's a solution, except it, it's hard then to, to have much direction for what what does... Who is this God that I say, you know, I'm, I belong to? Yeah. And mm-hmm. I guess beyond that, how do I get a sense of what God intends for how I live with other people? If it's like, well, God's allowed to murder people left and right, but you're not because you're not like, I mean, like, it, 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 again, it makes it hard to say meaningfully, 
God is love, if there's also this glaring caveat of except the times that God is murdering people, then God is not love. Um, that, that's, it's difficult, I guess. And, and maybe dealing with the God is actually in the scriptures is going to require places where we're uncomfortable. Maybe like loving any real person. There's going to be places where they're not the person you want them to be. And you've got to learn that I'm going to accept this person that I've got. And I think part of the reason that the scriptures give us so many different sides and aspects of God that we'll never figure out, never be able to, you know, say, well, we have this side of God over here, but we have this side of God over here, and they seem to be in contradiction to yeah. one another, is because we will never fully understand God. Because, sure. I mean, if, if everything that God did made sense compared to everything else that God does, like, <laughs> if, and not to say that God isn't the same from Genesis 1 to, Re- to the end of Revelation, he is, but, like, if there's just this consistent, like, we could predict what God is going to do in a circumstance. Yeah then what kind of God are we serving? That reminds me, there's a line of Douglas John Hall who says something like, the one attribute you can count on from God throughout the the Hebrew and the Christian scriptures is that God is faithful, but not predictable. And he makes the distinction. He says, God is faithful, so there's there's some through line to who God is, Mm -hmm. but that's not the same as saying God is predictable. Um, And that seems like an important thing to, to know. And in that case, if that's the lens, you can say the story of what happens in Egypt is God's faithfulness of the promise made to Abraham and Sarah and whatever, but it also raises the question of that faithfulness sure comes at a price to the Egyptians. Um, mm-hmm. And I guess if all we said was we, we just care about how God treats Israel, that would solve the problems. In another sense, like ancient Judaism had a way of solving this problem that Christianity doesn't, and that Christianity then moves on to say God loves all peoples everywhere. If, you're, if you want to say parochial and say, well, God only loves the Israelites, that solves the problem. And I say, well, that's why God did all these terrible mm-hmm. things to the Egyptians, because God must not love them. Um, but... Christianity has insisted, no, in fact, and I, I think you can make the point, like with Jonah's story, God has all along loved all peoples, mm-hmm. and you're not allowed to just say God only cares about my tribe or my nationality. But again, it presents another wrinkle, I guess. I'm not sure we're going to solve this. Um, no, probably <laughs> not. But it does, it does seem worth noting here. Um, it seems like we've said, for whatever's going on in the biblical text with whether God is or is not allowed to kill Pharaoh or the Egyptians or whatever, it's not a fair game for us to make the leap and say, God did these disasters in the Old Testament, and therefore when a disaster happens in my time, mm-hmm. in my day, I'm allowed to decide who I think God is punishing right now. That's not a fair move that the scriptures allow. That's not what this passage is about or gives license for. I would agree with that point. And that's one that, thing we can say we saw. And maybe if that's all we say, that, that may be enough. Because yeah. like, honestly, that, that's a, a, a thing that needs to be said that shouldn't need to be said, but needs to be said. Yeah. Well, um, if you enjoy cans of worms as much as we do, we hope you'll join us for more conversation because we're going to have some fresh worms next time uh, as we keep looking at violence in the Bible and where God is in the midst of it here on Crazy Faith Talk. See y'all. Bye.